This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, Lawrence Lamer returns to chat with me about Hitchcock's Blondes. Larry is a leading biographer of the rich and powerful, including Capote's Women, Madness Under the Royal Palms, and The Kennedy Women, among many other books. The second season in FX's anthology series, Feud, will be an adaptation of Lamer's 2021 Putnam bestseller, Capote's Women. He lives in Washington, D.C. and Palm Beach, Florida. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. Welcome, Larry. I am so glad you're back with me again, this time to chat about Hitchcock's Blondes. How are you? Just great. Great. I loved Hitchcock's Blondes every bit as much as I loved Capote's Women, so I can't wait to talk about it. Great. Will you give me a quick synopsis of the book before we dive into my questions? Well, it's, it's, it's the story of this great director, the greatest director of the 20th century, and his obsessive relationship with eight of his actresses and the immortal films he made with them. And why he was so obsessed with blondes, right? That was the interesting part. I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, you always hear that, but it was interesting you dive into where that comes from. 
Well, first of all, he well, he was he was a repressed Catholic for starters. He he said he was impotent. They had one they had one daughter, but he said he was impotent. But just because you're impotent doesn't mean you're you you still can be sexually obsessed. And he was, and he was with his women. Not that he touched not not that he was like the some of the monstrous people were we 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 we've heard, learned about in Hollywood in recent years, but uh, he was obsessed with these actresses, and he thought blondes was the ultimate woman, ultimate woman. And the point that you made that I thought was really interesting was he didn't really care if they were naturally blonde, if they were dyed blonde, if they were wearing wigs. He just wanted them to be blonde. Exactly. Well, how did you become interested enough in this story to write about it? Well, it, it, my my, my uh, editor suggested it. And then I thought, wow, what a great idea. It hasn't been done before. And, and so much has been done on Hitchcock in that era. It's a new take. It is a new take to do it from the women's perspective. Yeah. And, and uh, I just, you know, sometimes actors and actresses are put down that they're, you know, all they can do is act and aren't that interesting. Each one of these women was fascinating to me. They were. And the other part that was completely interesting to me was what they had to go through. I mean, you always hear the stories about him and how difficult he was, and he put everybody through the paces, but I had no idea. Like your opening story about Tippi Hedren and the birds, if you want to talk a little bit about that, like I did not realize how grueling it would be to have starred in one of his films. Okay, well, well Tippi Hedren was a model, and, and uh, Hitchcock's watching the Today Show one morning, and his ad comes on for his diet drink, and there's Tippi Hedren walking across the screen, and he's stu- he, he just is mesmerized by her, and he has his people call her and sign her to a contract, and she thinks she's going to be on Alfred Hitchcox Presents, his Sunday evening half-hour program, but in, in a role in that, maybe, maybe not even a starring role. But, but So he puts her in The Birds, his next major film, and uh, in it, she, she's attacked by birds. She goes up the stairs and opens, opens the attic door, and the birds attacked her. Well, originally, they were going to use mechanical birds. And she comes in Monday morning, prepared to do that. And the assistant director says, I've got some bad news for you. Mechanical birds don't work, so we're going to use live birds. So out of the dressing room, she comes, and there's this big cage, and she goes in it. And for that day, for the day, the birds are attacking. Now, now any other director, almost any other director, would have shot that quickly and gotten on with it because it was so it was torture for her. But Hitchcock shot that one scene, which takes takes place for two minutes in the movie, all week long for five days. And Friday afternoon, he still hasn't had enough, so he has them tie the birds with with string on her wrist, and the birds come and attack her eyes, and they get within an inch of putting out her eyes. Now, did, did he do this to torture her because he hated women? No, he did it because he wanted to get the best best movie and the best shot. Was it was it too much? Yeah, probably was too much. I had so many thoughts as I was reading that. First, that was a great way to open the book because I was completely drawn in. I felt so much sympathy for her. I don't know how she just didn't run screaming away from this movie. And the idea that, you know, it, it starts out bad enough that she has to walk out and these birds are attacking her. But by day five, they're attached to her, literally yeah. tied to her. I was like, oh, my gosh. And then my other thought was there's no way he could get away with that today. No, he wouldn't be allowed to do. No, no. Well, a lot of his behavior, the kind right. of uh, sexual sides he would say to women. Now, women at that era, what did most of the women do other than Tippy? They just, you know, turned, turned their backs, told them to, maybe told them to shut up. But, but that was that. You, you couldn't do that today. 
I just thought over and over again, boy, he would not have been able to do this today. But also those women, they were tough. I mean, there were so many stories where I thought, I can't believe they put up with this, but also they just stood up and they were like, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get the shot and I'm willing to do it. I just don't think I could have done that. No, they had to be so shrewd, so shrewd. What kind of research did you do for this one? Well, most people were, uh, were going, well, first of all, the authors are either too generous, too kind, or they're the most miserable, uh, selfish SOBs. There's no bid ground. And in the f- former category is Patrick McGilligan, who wrote the definitive biography of Hitchcock, this massive book. He spent years doing it. And his archives are at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he, he gave me access to all of his years of work. So, you know, he, he, he would do all these interviews with people who are now gone, and he'd use a little of it. So I had all his interviews. It was, just, it was incredible, all that material. That, that was the essence of, of the historical research, although I had, I had three researchers helping me. And then I, the only, the, the, of, the, of the women I wrote about, only three of them are still alive. Tippi Hedren, Kim Novak, and Eva Marie Saint. Tippi is uh, in her early 90s, and she doesn't do interviews anymore. But I did interview Kim Novak and Eva Marie Saint. I want to hear all about that. That was on my list of questions for you. Well, who should we start with? Which one's more exciting? The, the one I came to admire, well, actually, I admire both of them. But uh, Eva Marie Saint was, you know, okay, first of all, my take on Eva Marie Saint is that she was very calculating. Now, most people say, no, calculating is not, not, well, and I don't consider that a criticism, okay? I consider if you want to be a good person in this world, you've got to be calculating. So she's a, she's a, she's a young actress in, uh, in, in New York City. She's getting these television parts, and she's, she's, she's living by herself in a little apartment, and she's lonely, and she wants to get married. And she decides, I don't want to marry an actor because we'll be competing with each other. And so she, 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 she hunts out the man she wants to marry, and she marries this young producer. And they have the most wonderful marriage. They have a couple of kids, but, the, but, they, but there's an incredible marriage. And she, she then, her family is, is more important to her than her career. So she would do one, when her kids were young, she would do one movie a year. That's it. She'd get all kinds of offers, just one movie. And uh, during the summer, she'd do summer stock. She'd take her family back east with her. And what a beautiful relationship. And she won an Academy Award as Best Supporting Actress for On the Waterfront. She kept that in the closet. She didn't keep it in the living room. And she had another life. And her husband died. And now she lives in an apartment on Wilshire Boulevard. And she's 99 years old. And uh, I interviewed her. And you could, the only sound you could hear was the lawnmower beneath the window. Now, her, her daughter was not happy with me writing about her living alone, li- about her living there, as if it meant that she was a bad daughter. I don't think that she's a bad daughter at all. If, if I'm 99, if I'm living with myself and not with my daughter, I think that will be great. But she was, a, she was spectacular and a woman of immense character. That's so interesting that that's what the daughter was upset about, that she didn't want to be portrayed as not having her mother living with her. Well, she, yeah, she, exactly, exactly. And she's 99 right. and was totally lucid and able to chat with you and everything. Totally lucid. I can't believe it. And still, she's a big Dodger fan. She wants to the game. She's got her friends that come over. She's got her real life. She's incredible. I love that. What about Kim Novak? Kim Novak is a totally different story. You know, Tim, Kim Novak, you know, it's all about the families you have. And, and, and even when we're saying came from this wonderful, li- lo- loving family, 
Her mother was a school teacher. When they brought the, the children, she stopped that so she could just be a mother and be home every day for her kids and totally devoted to them. Kim Novak's parents were, her father was, uh, had mental illness, was kind of manic depressive himself. And she grew up, uh, she was raped uh, when she was a 11, just a 12 or 13 years old. She suffered from that. She comes to Hollywood. She had an undefined illness. It wasn't until she was left Hollywood in her 40s that she went to a doctor. She diagnosed, she was bipolar. So she'd have these sweeping ups and downs. And, you know, she'd be making a movie and she'd be sitting in the dressing room and you time for your shot, uh, Ms. Novak, come up. She'd just sit there. And they think, you know, what a kind of obnoxious, arrogant prima donna she is. Well, in most senses, she's just depressed. She's just sitting there. She can't bring herself to come out. So she suffered with this all her life. And now that she realized that she left Hollywood, she married, she moved up to Oregon. She met this veterinarian and they just fell, they fell in love and got married and had a beautiful marriage. She's an artist. I've seen some of her art. She's very talented. She continues to art. And she suffers with these ups and downs. She's on medicine. But she still suffers with it. And uh, that, that's, that's her life. And she deals with it. How old is she now? She's in her 80s. 80s okay. 80s. I wasn't sure. So, and did she enjoy chatting with you about what it was like working with Hitchcock? It's interesting. She, she did. And the parameters of the interview were, it, it's about the making of that film. Well, during the middle of that film, she met Sammy Davis Jr., and became had an involvement with him. And so I asked her about that. It seemed to be a legitimate thing. And right after that, wow, it was on Christmas Eve. Her manager comes back to me, infuriated at me, that I, that I asked about that. You, weren't, you were supposed to ask about the making of the film. I said, well, that was part of what went on. And uh, so I thought, oh, this is going to be trouble. Well, I got an email from the manager this morning saying that she, that she loved what was written about her. So she felt I got it correct. Well, that's so fascinating. And I hadn't really thought through that part of it, that when you're granted the interview, they're probably giving you parameters within which you can ask questions. It makes perfect sense. I just hadn't thought about it. Well, you just assume. I don't, I don't even I mean, that was my book was about. You, you assume that's it, you know. But you've got to do, do their, 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 their biographical material as well, right? Right. You can't just drop into just this movie. You have to talk a little bit about their history as well, for sure. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I think she, I think Hitch really mistreated her. He put her down and in the end he made fun of her performance. And I think she should have been nominated for an Academy Award. That's how good she is in that. Right. No, I agree completely. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing this one? I guess just the, 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 the immense struggles that these, these, act, these women went through to, to, to achieve these things. And how, I mean, almost heroic there, I think. I don't use that word, but I'm thinking about it, yeah. That's what stuck with me, too. I just had no idea how grueling some of those sets were and how much they put up with, but also how willing they were to get through it. Well, remember, that, those were the roles. The roles, his classic, the classic Hitchcock film, is he puts a woman, an actress, through hell until she redeems herself in the end. Okay, whatever it is. I mean, in... Uh, Notorious with Ingrid Bergman, where her father's a Nazi spy and she's just sleeping around and she ends up marrying an, another Nazi spy to, to learn about what he's doing until she, in the end, you know, goes off with Cary Grant. Not, not a bad person to go off with. You know, that's, that, that, that's, that's the film. Or 39 Sets with Madeline Carroll, where she is hitched, she's, she's handcuffed to this man who's, who's falsely accused of being a spy and 
goes goes through this horrendous period until she's redeemed in the end. That's Hitchcock film. I would not have dreamt that she literally was handcuffed to him for so much of the filming. Right. And when and the first day when they come in with Robert Donay, they're meeting Hitchcock for the first time. He's not going to film it, but he handcuffs them together and pours water on them. And, and they want to go to the bathroom. He won't let them go to the bathroom. I would have been like, this is not for me. Right. That's the moment. He's going he's to prove it. And they, and they bonded. And the film was better for it. But at what a cost. Exactly. No, I agree with you. I mean, he clearly had a method that worked because his films are classics. But I just think, boy, the things they went through, but they were happy to do it and it paid off for them. But I just thought you, you don't always realize how tough some of that can be, especially if you're working on one of his films, I guess. Well, you think about it. You, you go on Amazon Prime and punch in the name Hitchcock. There are over 40, over 40 Hitchcock films you can watch with pleasure, starting with the sound film. The, the Lodger was a sound film which is just great. You can watch this. I'd recommend it to anybody. It's just it's immensely pleasurable film to watch. Do you have a favorite of his films? I would like to draw people to The Lodger, which uh, is a little bit based on Jack the Ripper. And I just, and, and it's silent, but as you watch it, you, 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 you don't think it's silent. You feel you, the dialogue itself. And, and of course, Psycho. Psycho is just incredible. I love Rear Window, but I haven't seen a ton of his films, but I do love Rear Window. And I love uh, North by Northwest. Yeah. Well, what was the hardest part about writing this one? The hardest part. Part of it is just the structure of the thing. That to, to, okay, so here's, here's, here's the problem. You've got the story of these chronolo chronological story of these eight actresses, and you've got to tell Hitchcock's story as well. And you've got to kind of fool the audience in, or not? Yeah, I guess it, whatever. You 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 got to have a little bit of hitch as you go on, and, you, and the audience has to believe that's integral to it. That you aren't playing games with them. So you just so you, so you read on. And, and and I'm not a biographer. I'm a storyteller. The way I see it. So each chapter has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got to be a real story. And and each chapter has to end to the final cha chapter, which has to be the most powerful. That's the way it works. Did you always start with the Tippy Hedren story? It's funny because, uh, again, about authors being such so, so helpful or not helpful at all. Mark Olshaker is an author who did the Mindhunter books. It's on the, the series, the, the book based on that. And he, had, he came up with the idea of putting Tippi Hedren's story as the beginning. I think it is such a captivating story and it just draws you right in. So I wondered who had that idea, because I think as soon as you read that, you're like, well, I've got to read everything else. Well, you know, <laughs> here again. So you begin, you begin with the most telling story. You put that at the beginning and it works. It's, it's almost a cliche, but it, but it works every time. Well, I think that's right, because you want to do something that's going to draw the reader in yeah. and you read that first chapter and you're like, oh, my gosh. Right. And then you want to know what else he does. Yeah. Like the handcuffing. Right. Well, how about the title in the cover? Well, the title is just unnatural. What else could you call it? I guess that's true. And... uh Grace Kelly, I mean, the way she looks, it's just, what can you say? It's just the most stunning look, looking woman than ever. But was it hard to decide who to put on the cover, or were you just set with Grace Kelly from the beginning? It, it just had to be Grace Kelly, I thought. Okay, that's interesting. I just, we also felt it's, it's Grace Kelly. It is such a stunning photo. But I was just curious, because they're all eight memorable, and you have great stories about all of them, and I was just really curious, who do you decide to put on the cover? Yeah, it wasn't because we thought she was best done. It was just because that that look that you just wanted. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Well, what about Capote's Women? Now I understand it's being adapted for the screen. 
It has been adapted. It's ready to go. It would, you'd be watching it right now if not for the writer's strike. Can you tell me a little bit about the adaptation? Well, Ryan Murphy, who's the king of streaming television, who's God, who's God these days, okay? John Robin Batts, who's a, who's a screenwriter who, who was nominated for a, a Pulitzer Prize for one of his plays, he read the book and he gave it to Ryan and Ryan read the book and they optioned it. And it's the second series of, of these feuds. The first one was Bette Davis and Joan Crawford was 2017, was a big success, got all, got all kind of Emmys. And this one has the most incredible cast. Demi Moore, Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Calista Flockhart, Molly Ringwald, uh, Tom Hollander, the absolutely amazing cast. And this month's uh, Town & Country has a cover story about it with these, um, these photos of these women in designer dresses that just just beyond beautiful. So it's going to be it's going to be quite something. The the high fashion industry is going to have some clothing uh, based on the swans, these women that Kumin Capote was were his close friends. So it's going to be quite something. It'll be eight weeks uh, early next year on FX and probably Hulu and on Disney all over the world. Okay, I was wondering when it was coming out. Well, that's great to know about Town and Country. I'm going to go track that cover down. But I just, when I read the cast, I loved the book. And then when I read the cast for the show, I'm like, okay, I have to know more and I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, the piece of town and country is so great. They did a wonderful job. And what an amazing cast. Have you been involved at all in all of that? You know, it's funny because they don't want the author around, okay? Right. By the, who's, what, what, who wrote the book? We were doing this. But so I, I spent one day and I went to New York and they were supposed to, they were, they, I want, I, what I wanted to see was the black and white ball. That's the famous ball. The most famous party of the 20th century, in a way. Truman Capote's in cold blood. He had this party, uh, was the ultimate party, at the Plaza Hotel. And so they were going to do it at the Plaza Hotel, but at midnight, they were going to do it when, when there's no people around, but they decided not to do that. So instead, they did it at the Polish Consulate, which is on, I don't know, it's like Madison Avenue 34, something like that. Anyway, so I stayed in a hotel nearby, and I started walking to there, and here are these big movie trucks. Four, four blocks away, and I think, well, these got to be. There got to be some other production being done. But no, this was for this. And I show up, and this the la- this lackey comes out and brings me up and puts me in this director's chair. And this tall, lean guy looks like a cowboy in his jeans comes up to me and says, uh, "Hi, I'm Gus." And I said, "Hi, I'm Larry. What do you do, Gus?" And he said, "I'm Gus Van Sand. I'm the director." Oh. <laughs> You're like, oh, hi. <laughs> so I saw, I saw Demi Moore was there that day and Tom Hollander. And you could sense the excitement on the set. I mean, they just look so excited about doing this. And how cool to create the black and white ball. That's one of those things. You see the photos of it and you think, I wish I could have been there. It must have just been the most, I don't know, beautiful thing. And so to have that recreated. Well, you'll be there. Exactly. Now I can't wait to see it on the screen. Well, before we wrap up, Larry, what have you read recently that you really liked? Well, I'm, I'm, my new book is on, is on Andy Royal and his views, because this is kind of a trilogy I'm doing. And I'm in the midst of a book called uh, uh, about, about Lou Reed, the King of New York. And I'm just, I'm just incredibly good biography, and just really incredible. And I'm also reading a book by Lynn Dodden's novel Bomber about World, World War II. I'm enjoying that immensely, too. So you said you're writing a trilogy. So you have Capote's Women, you have Hitchcock's Blondes, and then the third book's going to be about Andy Warhol and his women? Yes. 
Oh, how fascinating. I love Andy Warhol's art, but I don't know a ton about his personal life. So that's exciting. Yeah. Well, I've got unique material, believe me. Okay, good. And when will that one be coming out? A couple of years? A couple of years, yeah. Okay, good. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you again, Larry, for joining me this time. I always love chatting with you and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Cindy. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.